Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Hey, buddy. Welcome to Hayek's Health Club. As you probably know, we're the only chain of gyms totally devoted to the theories of Austrian economist F.A. Hayek. I guess I had heard that. My name is Wolf. I'll be your personal trainer. I'm a fully certified libertarian health and fitness instructor. Who does that certification? Nobody. That would be an intrusion by a smothering outside authority. You don't want that, do you, buddy? I guess not. So what kind of program will you be setting up for me? None at all. Here at Hayek's, we're very hands-off. We are committed to giving you none-on-one attention. You mean one-on-one? No, none-on-one. We believe in individualism. We know you'll reach your potential if we don't interfere with you. I was just thinking in terms of, should I do more weights? Or... Ah, well, we're not falling into that interventionalist trap. As your personal trainer, my job is to set you free so you can experience that natural market ecosystem that'll regulate your workouts. I'm just wondering how many clients you could possibly have. Oh, we don't have any. You would be the first. But that's okay. What are we supposed to do? Move into a government-sponsored enterprise zone? Apply for tax credits? (laughs) I see your point. Now, there's a radio show about to start. Whether you people listen to it is entirely your business. You will make the best choice, whatever choice you make, okay? And now he demands that we withdraw from the International House of Pancakes, Colin McEnroe. That is true. As a libertarian, I don't believe we should participate in the International House of Pancakes. Uh, it's, it, it, before you know it, we'll be involved with Belgian waffles, and you know it's a, it's a slippery slope. Uh, all right, so oh, at the beginning of the show today, we are going to talk about a party that maybe you don't pay that much attention to in most election cycles, but which may have a kind of rising significance right now for lots of reasons that are probably, be, are probably self-evident. But like most self-evident things, this being public radio, we'll probably explain them to you anyway. And then towards the end of the show, we're going to talk about two very different men who left very different marks. Uh, Each one has died recently. One of them is Muhammad Ali, uh, and the other is David Chase. David Chase, who survived three different concentration camps uh, and before becoming one of the richest men in America at at one point and and certainly one of Hartford's and Connecticut's great benefactors, one of the people who helped found the Holocaust Museum in Washington, many other things as well. So uh, two stories to tell you about that. But we're going to tell you some libertarian stories first. And to help us do that, uh, Jennifer Rubin is joining us. She's the author of the Right Turn blog for The Washington Post. And Claire Malone is senior political writer for 538, where she's also, uh, I've become a fan of her appearances on their on their podcast, where she plays, what does she play? She plays the popular girl who makes fun of the nerds exactly the way the nerds like to be made fun of. I think I have summed that up. Um, all right. So, um, and Claire, uh, since that's who you are, I'm going to get uh, started with you uh, just just in terms of the numbers. And I, I know you're not one of those quants, but you sitteth on the right hand uh, of those quants. So uh, how significant uh, are Gary Johnson and Bill Weld, the ticket for the Libertarian Party, according to the numbers so far? And I, I guess we should also bracket that by saying they don't always appear in polls in order to become significant. They don't appear in polls very often at all. Um, they, you know, the Johnson Johnson himself has been in three national polls so far, and I think is 
people know who are paying attention to the race. Even casually, there are tons and tons of polls. So um, three is, is, is not too many to be included in, but he's been polling at about 10 or 11 percent in, in, these couple of, um, in these couple of surveys that have come out, which is uh, a decent showing. Uh, now, of course, the threshold in order to get into uh, the, the presidential debates is 15 percent. Uh, so he still has a little bit of ways to go, but I think it's still a pretty significant number. And given the fact that uh, you know Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are sort of historically, uh, they have historically high unfavorable ratings. Uh, it could it could get interesting with Gary Johnson and Bill Weld. Yeah, so Jennifer Rubin, uh, many of my Republican friends have talked to me about uh, third parties. Is there going to be an, uh, another kind of candidacy that they can support if they can't quite hold their nose uh, and deal with Trump? Well, there kind of already is one. I guess the question would be, Jennifer, whether or not it, it conforms to the kinds of needs that a dissatisfied with Trump Republican would have. It depends what kind of conservative you're talking about. If you're talking about a conservative who believes one of President Obama's weakest points has been uh, an insufficiently robust national security, you're probably not going to like Gary Johnson and Bill Weld. If you are a social conservative and think uh, the bane of the United States is now gay marriage and want to reverse it and want to uh, see if you can uh, roll back Roe v. Wade, you're not going to like these guys either because they are socially uh, what we call liberal, but uh, they would say libertarian. I think the type of conservatives who would be attracted to them are people who really do not have a home uh, in this election cycle, and that is people who favor less government regulation, less taxes, um, a uh, reduced uh, footprint in the economy. Um, Those are the people that uh, Gary Johnson and Bill Weld may resonate with. Uh, they are both experienced governors. Um, ironically, they may be the most experienced people in the contest overall. Um, they have about 14 years of governing experience, Bill Weld, of course, in Massachusetts and Gary Johnson in New Mexico, uh, both infamously stingy on budgets, um, both tax cutters. Uh, Gary Johnson has said uh, anything that she shrinks the federal government, he would be in favor of. So I think it's those types of Republicans. And I think The other type of voter who's going to be there is just someone who's looking for a protest vote. They may not subscribe to everything that Gary Johnson and Bill Weld have to say, but they can't bring themselves to vote for either one of the major candidates. And that, too, may be uh, a source of votes for them. So, um, Claire, one thing that we want to know, but uh, because of that dearth of polling that you described before, we may not know. Why don't, we probably want to know a little bit more about the demogra- demographics of potential libertarian support, right? We have some ideas, some of which are, are misconceptions about who, it, who actually supports Donald Trump, who actually supports Hillary Clinton, in terms of you know what kind of person, what age bracket, what race, what income, what education. I guess what we probably don't know, unless we intuit it, from from their positions is what kind of person demographically might gravitate towards a libertarian slate. Sure. Yeah. And I think Jennifer touched on something, which is, you know, libertarians will tell you that they are very distinct. I think there's a little bit of a, you know, an idea right now that that they're they're sort of Republican light uh, and they do obviously have a lot in common with sort of the, the fiscal conservatism. Um, but there is a whole, you know, you know, drug legalization culture side to things. So it's so it's a very interesting uh, interesting mix. Uh, I think we can look at people who who might be lodging, you know, pulling pulling the libertarian lever as perhaps being, you know, maybe people who were Kasich voters. I think that uh, or, you know Republicans in urban areas around the country could be ripe. Um, you know, we can look a little bit. 
uh, and see uh, that the in the Virginia governor's race in 2013, uh, a man named Robert Sarvis ran as a libertarian there and got almost 7% of the vote. And actually, this might be surprising to some listeners, but, you know, I don't think it's just going to be, Republic, you know, protest vote Republicans who, who might be going over for, uh, for, for Gary Johnson and Bill Weld. In, in the Sarvis race, uh, you know, a breakdown of exit polls and, and sort of precincts found that a lot of areas that, were, that had gone, you know, pretty highly for, for Terry McAuliffe, uh, Sarvis did incredibly well as well. And, you know, I think if you look at a couple of these national polls that have been out um, about, uh, you know, Weldon, Weldon Johnson, I guess just Johnson, um, when in head-to-head versus the three-way race, um, Johnson was actually pulling a little bit of support, more support from Hillary Clinton. Um, so I think the, the idea that, you know, the legalization of marijuana, of drugs in general, uh, is, is, you know, is a pretty big marquee issue for libertarians, and I think that's a little bit more likely uh, to play well with, say, a Sanders, a disaffected Sanders Democrat who might be looking to say, you know, hey, I, uh, I'm, I'm looking to sort of, you know, change the system a bit. Um, and, and culturally, I think Gary Johnson can also make a pretty solid play for Democrats. You know, he'll tell you that in the uh, I side with online quiz that sort of tells you what political affiliation, his line is that, you know, outside of himself, he sides with Bernie Sanders 73% of the time on issues. So I think that's an interesting, there's an interesting idea here that he might draw equally from both Republicans and Democrats who are disaffected this year. Yeah, you know, Jennifer, in some ways I could see uh, the Democratic argument almost better uh, imagining somebody who, uh, particularly maybe a, a slightly younger voter who's not interested in criminal penalties for uh, a lot of uh, currently illegal drugs, who's essentially pro-choice, doesn't want intervention on, on abortion, and is also maybe a little freaked out by Hillary Clinton's overall international interventionist vibe that there maybe just kind of, well, I'm even thinking of my son who's 26 who keeps saying, well, if anybody in the current field would ever get us into a war, it's her. Um, so you can sort of see maybe why uh, why Democrats of a certain ilk who are are unhappy with their current choice could go over there. I do agree with that, and I think um, the type of Democrat who won't go over um, is actually a pretty strong Hillary Clinton voter. In other words, um, perhaps a little bit older voter, um, someone who has a union background, someone who uh, thinks that uh, the safety net is not strong enough, who wants to uh, build upon some of the government programs. Um, Those types of people are going to have a hard time swallowing Johnson because what he talks about most, other than drug legalization, which is a big issue for him, is how he's going to shrink and make the federal government disappear. Um, and so for a lot of Hillary voters, that's, those are fighting words. Um, but I do think the cultural vibe, as you say, is very important. I also think that although these two folks have the most governing experience of anybody running for president, neither one of them seem to be an insider. Part of that is the libertarian kind of pose that they're um, really anti-government in some sense. Part of it is that they've never served in uh, Washington. They've been governors out in the hinterland. Part of it is that for a lot of voters, they're new people. For me, they seem like they've been around forever, but that's because I remember when they were both governors. Many voters um, who have come along since then, this may be the first time they're being introduced to these people. So I do think uh, they have the capacity to draw both from small government Republicans and kind of the cultural Bernie Sanders uh, folk. Um, he is uh, in favor, or I'll put it this way, he's against government prohibiting gay marriage. That's the sort of 
formulation. They don't want to tell us uh, they are in favor of gay marriage, but they're opposed to government regulating that. Um, there's also a lot of other issues of uh, Internet uh, freedom, um, NSA surveillance. A lot of these issues that resonated particularly with young slightly more affluent um, Bernie Sanders voters. I could see a lot of college kids going over to the uh, libertarian ticket. Of course, first they have to find out uh, uh, anything. And so uh, we have a little clip here. So for those of you who, unlike uh, Jennifer, don't remember Gary Johnson, uh, here he is uh, quite recently talking to Tess Stewart from Rolling Stone. I would not be doing this if there weren't the opportunity to win. But the only opportunity that I have of winning is to be in the presidential debates. And to be in the presidential debates, I've got to be in the polls. Uh, Right now, I've been in three national polls. uh, But in the meantime, there have been another 40 polls where my name has not been included. Uh, okay, this is what, uh, actually uh, a clip with Chuck Todd. Uh, wrong, uh, r- wrong identification. But anyway, so um, this is a little bit of a problem, Claire, in the sense that um, libertarianism isn't a unified brand. It's sort of weird because it's the only one of the political parties that that still talks about itself in terms of theory a lot of the time, libertarian theory. Nobody talks about democratic theory or republican theory. So in a sense, you'd think, well, it must be a very unified brand, but it's not. You know, in a lot of people's minds, it's um, associated with crackpots uh, like Lyndon LaRouche. Uh, in other people's minds, uh, it's uh, associated with a guy like maybe Ron Paul, who cuts a much more conservative profile than does Gary Johnson or Bill Weld. Um, so one of the things that Johnson desperately needs is exposure to to establish how much he resembles any of the foregoing and, and how much he differs from it. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Libertarianism is a is a very big tent, and it, it is. Uh, you know, I was at the I was at their convention actually in in Orlando, Florida last weekend, and you can really see how it runs the gamut. There are people who are in what they call the radical caucus, um, who are you know they don't quite like to. To call themselves anarchists, but they they sort of have a lot of those views, which is that you know they don't they don't believe in the validity of driver's licenses. They don't believe that the government should tell you whether or not you know your your ten year old can do heroin. I mean, it's, it's so and these are things that you know, and they'll tell you, of course, ten year olds shouldn't do heroin. But from a theoretical point of view, you know, this is this is a thing that it, it, it's you know uh, they're almost like the philosopher king party. They they're a little bit suspicious of people in politics who are sort of in the dirty business of thing. And there's a lot of sort of theoretical questions that they like to bat around. You know, the, the presidential debate at the convention involved, you know, sort of hypothetical questions of should the U.S. have gotten into World War One and World War II, you know, things like that. And then on the other side of things, you had a guy running for president, Austin Peterson, who for a couple weeks in there became a little bit of the darling of the, you know, the talk radio right. Mary, Mary Matlin uh, endorsed him. And that's partially because he, he'd come out with a a libertarian pro-life stance. So, so that's sort of an example of how 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 wide the tent of the party is. And I think Gary Johnson's job in the next month, I would say, um, is to sort of get on TV and uh, talk as practically as he can to the American people about how libertarian ideas might translate in 2016. Obviously, you know, Johnson is. Johnson is a practical guy, right? He's 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 in favor of driver's licenses. You know, he's not going to entirely upend the system and and sort of uh, give off the vibes that a lot of the the people with a certain kind of radical reputation in his party give off. Um, but he is, you know, he is saying a lot of the lines that I think Ron Paul had a huge effect on the Republican Party. I mean, how many times did people, you know, people like Ted Cruz say in the primaries, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna end the IRS, things like that. Um, and th- those are actually sort of 
libertarian, that sort of trickle-down libertarianism in a way that's sort of made its way into, into Republican rhetoric. Um, and, and so in some ways, Johnson, you know, the ground has sort of been laid for Johnson. And so if he can speak, say, speak to, to, to conservatives and say, do you really want radical small government? Well, here's, here's my plan. And, you know, he, he had quite a reputation for vetoing what he thought were um, fiscally loose policies in, in New Mexico. So I think, he'll, I think he'll make an interesting case over the next month. Um, but he also, he also has some fundraising hurdles to overcome. I think that's going to be a big thing. So, uh, Jennifer, obviously there is this, obvi- this kind of circular reasoning problem here that you need to do, uh, have a, hit a certain level in the polls in order to qualify for the debates, but the, debates aren't, but the polls aren't polling on you because you haven't been in a debate before or whatever. Anyway, it's very difficult to raise your profile up above the horizon, at least using that mechanism. Are there other mechanisms? I mean, Gary Johnson and Bill Weld, they're not going to get on Rush Limbaugh's show. So how... How do they get their message to people who might be receptive to it? Well, I'm not sure about Rush Limbaugh, but, um, for example, they've been on the Michael Medved show. He's a conservative talk radio um, host. So I wouldn't underestimate their ability to get on uh, mass media. They are doing some uh, Sunday shows, for example. Um, When I interviewed Gary Johnson a couple weeks back, um, I was somewhat surprised because he doesn't come across as a doctrinaire libertarian. He says, for example... And this is controversial in the Libertarian Party that he's in favor of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Many libertarians are not. They, of course, don't believe in discrimination, but they don't think the government should be prohibiting it. Um, As um, we were talking about a moment ago, he believes in driver's license. When you ask him what he would like to do, he often gives a very sensible response, which is, I just get to sign, if I am president, what Congress sends me. And I promise you, anything that reduces the size of government, I will sign. And that is a really a very practical approach that I think may work with a lot of voters, because they don't want to hear uh, he's going to you know, defund uh, Social Security, he's going to um, remove the State Department. They don't want to hear um, sort of pie-in-the-sky, very sort of scary things. But here's a guy saying, I have an overall philosophy. Congress sends me to legislation, and this is the kind of stuff I'm going to sign. This is the kind of stuff I'm going to veto. Um, and you're right. In terms of uh, his veto record, uh, he chokes. He says he's not quite sure of the statistic, but he claims to have vetoed more bills, more spending bills, than every other governor in office at the time combined. Um, and that is true. He got quite a reputation for being a, uh, a fierce vetoer. So, Claire, now we're coming up to the problem that has dogged 538 um, throughout this election, which is to what degree is history instructive and to what degree is this election sui generis? Um, and, and, and both things have to be, be kind of weighed here. But, you know, I'm, we can talk, and, and I know you have written about some preceding candidacies that are important. I mean, Wallace with 14 percent, uh, Ross Perot the first time with 19 percent. I mean, pretty obviously a, a factor in that election, uh, whatever uh, anybody thinks Nader might have done in 2000. I think, you know, one of the differences here, at least anecdotally, is, you know, when you talked to people in some of those election cycles and you said, well, this might have the your vote might have the unintended consequence uh, of of electing the member of the, the nominee from the party that you're the least sympathetic to. 
Um, I just don't hear those conversations right now. Now, now you say, you know, if you vote for somebody from a libertarian or a third party candidate, it might really wreck your own party's candidates chances. They say, I know that's why I might do it. Yeah. Uh, well, I think I'm, I'm a wise enough fool to say that, that, that 2016 is probably, as you said, sui generis, that, that we, don't, we don't quite know what's going to happen. You know, just, just to give people sort of a historical anchoring, yes, Rothbro took 19% of the vote share in 92. At about this time in May of 92, he was polling at, at 17%. So, so not too far off where he ended up. That said, you know, we don't really know how how all of this is going to play out, and how, frankly, how how Gary Johnson is going to, going to play in 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 the media. You know, I think he's um, in some ways he could be a very sort of attractive presence because he's he's sort of uh, guileless and a little a little aw shucks and sort of comes off as authentic. And and again, I mentioned earlier, Trump and and Clinton are sort of historically disliked people. On the other hand, you know, maybe Clinton and and Trump get worried about him and and sort of use the libertarian, I mean, this is in politic to say, but sort of the wacko label that it's that it can have. Um, and so I, I think it's, I, I will say, I will exercise a little caution here and say that it's, it's, it's unclear that, that, you know, Gary Johnson will be polling at 10% in, you know, in two months, you know, he could, his poll numbers could slip precipitously. And, and I think we really, we really just don't know what's going to happen. But I think we'll start to have, I do think it's part of the process of, you know, Johnson should probably be included in a lot more polls. And I don't think we have enough data yet to know sort of, you know, to, to sort of stake out a pattern and say, here are the kind of people who, who might lean towards him. Yeah, I, I really just think we're, we're working a bit with, at, a, at an information deficit at this point. And Jennifer, is there anybody left, any prominent Republican who could who could help out? I mean, you know, you look at the positions of these guys and you look at the positions of Paul Ryan and then you look at the positions of Donald Trump. And even though these guys have some these guys, I mean, Johnson and Weld have some ideas that Paul Ryan would find pretty hard to swallow. And Paul Ryan has stick a lot of his life on a kind of entitlement reform that Trump is just adamantly not going to do. Uh, and, and, and so many of the things that seem very important to Paul Ryan, Ryan seem not anywhere on Donald Trump's uh, radar and maybe a little bit more on Gary Johnson's radar. But but Ryan is gritting his teeth and standing next to Trump. Is there anybody left in the uh, in the party, a prominent conservative who could help these guys out by legitimizing them? It's a very interesting question, because today, Jeff Flake, um, who is a rather libertarian Republican from Arizona, uh, announced that he cannot support Donald Trump. And I do wonder what would happen if he, for example, lent his credibility to these guys. Um, there are other Republicans who are really very small government folk um, who you could imagine, um, although many of them um, have signed up behind Donald Trump. Just two quick things. One is, I think it's going to be hard for Donald Trump to play the wacko card with the libertarians <laughs> because he himself has a problem with extreme weird positions. So maybe Hillary Clinton, who I think is going to try to play the grown-up in this race, is going to use that. I, I don't recommend that um, uh, approach to uh, Donald Trump. The second thing is that they are already on 32 state ballots, and they're rather confident they're going to wind up on all 50. They will be the only third party, um, significant one aside from um, perhaps the Green Party, that will be on that many ballots. And for that reason alone, I do think it's incumbent upon the pollsters um, to measure them, if for no other reason to see how much is being bled off uh, to the main candidates. So I think um, 
the historic unpopularity of these two candidates. I think social media will help them. I do think their demeanor is um, a, uh, a respite from the bombast um, that you hear from Trump and kind of the politically overscripted uh, kind of rhetoric you hear from Hillary Clinton. So they could very well do well. Uh, Gary Johnson is right, though. It's all about getting to 15 percent so he can get on that debate stage. If he doesn't, I would see him receding back to single digits. If he does, uh, I could see him doing as well, if not better than Ross Perot. Uh, Jennifer, um, let me ask you one more question, which is that uh, in uh, uh, previous cycles, David Koch uh, has even run for vice president uh, as a Libertarian Party candidate. Do we know where those guys are? Do we know where the Koch brothers are on all this? Because it's there's prominent Republicans and then there's money, uh, and money is not unimportant. I was asking you, Jennifer. I don't know. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, you know, we, we don't know. Um, there has been all sorts of... Um, reports and then denials that they are either going to be backing libertarian or they're going to be backing the conservative. I suspect what they do, what they're going to do is not play in the presidential race very much and look to down ticket uh, races and to state uh, issues. So if I think Gary Johnson starts doing well and he could attract that kind of money, that's a whole new ballgame. Um, and obviously um, one of the difficulties they have in gain name recognition is um, not only getting um, some free media, but also getting some earned media. And that does take um, some money. And get out the vote operations require money as well. So um, that would be a real coup if they could uh, land uh, some of the Coke money. All right. Uh, this has been so great to talk to both of you. Uh, Claire Malone, a senior political writer for 538. Uh, I'll be listening to the podcast. It's now become one of my favorites. Uh, Jennifer Rubin, author of Right Turn, a blog for The Washington Post. Thanks for both of you being here. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to switch gears a little bit, uh, talk about uh, Muhammad Ali and very specifically how Muhammad Ali became arguably the most important athlete of all time. Well, I suppose it's a fair question. After a weekend of commemorations and lamentations, uh, is there are there things left to say about Muhammad Ali? But on the other part of that is that he loomed so incredibly large. Uh, his uh, his impact uh, on on so many aspects of American life was so huge that in fact we could talk for weeks and weeks about him and, and not ex exhaust him as a topic. Joining us now is Dave Zirin, sports editor of The Nation. He's been on the show many times before. White writes a weekly sports column at Edge of Sports and hosts the weekly show Edge of Sports Radio. He's the author of many books, but most recently, Brazil's Dance with the Devil, the World Cup, the Olympics, and the Fight for Democracy, which I assume you're just kind of uh, doing revisions of all the time. And uh, I mean, <laughs> that one, that yeah, one is... We, we just put out a, a new edition for the Olympics, and we were doing rewrites up to the last moment. And we end it really with uh, Dilma on the verge of impeachment, uh, which is not great given that she has been impeached. But at the same time, I think we got the contours right. A ton of corruption, uh, 
a very precarious situation and a lot of uncertainty going forward. Right. Has not hit its angle of repose yet, I don't think. It's still a, a rock slide. But uh, let's uh, talk about Muhammad Ali. You know, the bridge, I guess, from the previous segment was uh, one of our two guests talking about libertarians said, well, that, well, Gary Johnson, unlike a lot of libertarians, he does support the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Some libertarians don't even uh, support that. Um, and when you say that, it, it, it it's a reminder of what Muhammad Ali was was doing in 1966 that, you know, I mean, people who've watched recently the Brian Cranston thing about LBJ getting and the work to get that right, uh, that that act passed with this incredibly delicate, patched together, uh, filibuster plagued compromise. You realize just how edgy the American public was uh, in the mid 60s about the role of of all African-Americans. And here's this guy making this pronouncement uh, about uh, how he feels about American involvement in Vietnam and what he's going to do about it, Dave. So, I mean, you know, the, the cliche in sports uh, uh, interviewing is, how big was that? Well, uh, that was big. That was really big when he did that. I mean, all we really have to do is imagine what the reaction would be if an athlete uh, did anything even similar to the absolute, uh, uh, the absolute fiery necessity that Muhammad Ali brought to the table. I mean, telling truths that people just did not want to hear. I think if an athlete said some of these things today, they would be excoriated. And I also think many of the sports journalists who are issuing these fulsome tributes to Muhammad Ali would have no patience if an athlete today uh, spoke out against U.S. war overseas, um, spoke out in favor of army resistance, said something like, God damn the white man's money. That's an exact quote from Muhammad Ali. I mean, imagine anybody saying that, and, but more importantly, imagine how they would be received. Imagine if they would be, even be able to have a career after saying some of these things. And so this is who Muhammad Ali was. I mean, he was somebody who was a teller of very difficult truths, who risked an incredibly lucrative career to do so, was robbed of three and a half years of his absolute prime to practice that career, and yet he is still perceived as having won. And I think that's why he's such a global icon to this day, is he took on the U.S. government and he won. And there's not a lot of people who can say that. And I'll tell you that it's, I think it's such a tribute to the fact that he won. If you look at who's speaking at his funeral, President Bill Clinton, I mean, what, what that says above all else is that, you know, there's this generation of politicians who have just said, well, we couldn't beat Muhammad Ali, so I guess we'd better join him. Dave, did he win? I mean, uh, he, as you said, lost three and a half years of his prime fighting career. Uh, he didn't go to prison. Uh, the Supreme Court didn't so much vindicate him as cite what really what amounted to almost paperwork uh, as a technical reason for, for vacating the charges against him. So, so did he win? He won the way the fish won in The Old Man in the Sea. Uh, you know, it's, he, the, the, the old man wasn't able to land him, but the fish had been eaten within an inch of its life by the far lesser fish um, as he went through the waters. I mean, the, the greatest argument for actually questioning whether Ali won was just the fact that he was robbed of his voice. Um, he came back into the ring. He found out that he had an unbelievable ability to take a punch. And by the time it was all done, uh, he really... Had, had Parkinson's disease, which was aggravated by these repeated blows to the head or accelerated by these repeated blows to the head. 
And yet, despite all of that, of course he won. I mean, he went from being bugged by Richard Nixon to being invited to Gerald Ford's White House. He went from being renounced by the city council of Louisville to having the main thoroughfare in Louisville named after him. I mean, this is somebody who won because he never surrendered his principles. Instead, the country moved to him. The U.S. government moved closer to him. Now, in recent years, that's been much more complex as he's lost the ability to really speak for himself and as the United States has engaged in this um, endless war in the Middle East. But one could imagine what Muhammad Ali would have said if he'd had his speech during these last 20 years. And I think if he'd said what was on his mind, maybe there would be less celebrations of him upon his passing. I think the other thing that might be difficult for a person who was not alive at the time to understand was how big a celebrity uh, Muhammad Ali was at that moment. Uh, he was, I mean, first of all, boxers were famous then in a way that they really aren't today. I mean, the average American with a you know a very average interest in sports in 1965 could have rattled off the name of a minimum eight to ten boxers. People knew who they were. It was on television a lot, and there wasn't that much else on television. Uh, and, and it was just a less maligned and more exciting sport. And then... But but piled on top of that was his superstar, and there really nobody had ever seen anything like him. My mother, who was a Goldwater Republican, uh, was absolutely in love with Cassius Clay. I mean, she just worshipped this guy. Uh, his looks, his charisma, uh, you know, he actually not only was dominating the field of boxing, but he was kind of revamping what a, the idea of what a boxer looked like and spoke like. I mean, it's, Dave, it's very difficult even to describe now what the impact of that celebrity was. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the best descriptions of it that I read is that being the heavyweight champion in Ali's day was like being the heavyweight champion of masculinity. I mean, <laughs> you were the toughest guy in the toughest sport. And so to have the heavyweight champion not only tell everybody how pretty he was, but also be somebody who would not support war. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was something that really turned people on their heads. I mean, think about being a 50-year-old fight fan, 50-year-old white fight fan, and having your heavyweight champion to talk about how pretty he was and say that he had no quarrel with the Viet Cong. I mean, it really did. It took the whole lexicon of American sports heroism and turned it on its head. You know, on the other hand, as you were suggesting earlier, you know, in a way he changed everything, and in a way, another way, nothing changed. So, yeah, I mean, I think even reading his quotes now about being a Muslim and therefore being guided more by by Muslim precept and Muslim law than by anything else, uh, and for that reason not being able to go and fight a, a war in Vietnam, in which he felt he had, as a black man, no real stake anyway. I, you're right. I mean— if if an African-American uh, athlete right now who is also a Muslim said stuff like that, I, I, he might be torn apart. He or she might be torn apart. I mean, if Serena Williams suddenly said something like that, I just I, I'm not even sure what would happen. Well, and also if even more so if the fact that they were Muslim was something that they uh, applied mm-hmm. and said, like, as a Muslim, um, I disagree with what the United States is doing in the Middle East. I disagree with drone attacks. I disagree with the idea that innocent Muslims are being killed from the skies by my country. I mean, imagine how that would be received. Again, I can't say this loudly enough. So many of the journalists who are praising Muhammad Ali would bury a contemporary athlete 
for taking one-fifth of the stands that he took. And to know that, you just have to look at, like, the athletes who stood with Black Lives Matter the year before last and how they were treated by the press. I mean, it was treated as if it was just, like, this unbelievably either horrible or at the very least sensationalized thing instead of just saying, wait a minute, they're citizens in this country. They're upset with what's taking place. They have a platform. Why shouldn't they be able to speak? Which is exactly what people were saying about Muhammad Ali low the many decades ago. So I really don't know how much progress we've made, but I do know that the very existence of Muhammad Ali and the example that he continues to provide means that there's some of that wine that just cannot be put back in the bottle. You know, the other thing that intrigues me, well, actually, I want to go back to the, to the uh, to that moment uh, in 66 and, and also ask another thing about it. I, I've often wondered if the only, if one of the downsides of that moment was the way that Ali became magnetized about this issue and, and became symbolic of a black man refusing to fight in Vietnam. I mean, in retrospect, we now know that, that, that black Americans fought in Vietnam at a slightly, not much, but a slightly higher percentage than their actual population, that their casualties were marginally even higher uh, than their proportion of the actual U.S. population. Um, and in a way, you had this very convenient symbol for a lot of people who might have wanted to go negative, particularly after the battles uh, of the mid-60s, and say, well, look, here's this privileged black man. He won't even go fight in Vietnam, and to suggest that that he that he was somehow or other emblematic of other people. Yeah, no, that's absolutely correct. I, I mean, I, I have no idea um, what to even add to that, except that his his heroism cut across generational lines as well. And it's interesting looking back, like how many young people loved this guy when the entire world hated him. And that's why I've been saying this on, on other shows. I think it's so important. I think we all understand that Muhammad Ali was shaped by the 1960s, that if you don't have this period of upheaval, you don't get this person. But Muhammad Ali also shaped the 60s. And this idea of what he said, he said, I don't have to be what you want me to be. I mean, that's what a whole generation was saying. And you had the establishment just lining up against him, and yet you had kids lining up to see him speak. Now, where did you ever have that in U.S. society except for, I guess, rock and roll? Mm -hmm. And rock and roll, Elvis, Jerry Lee Lewis, I mean, it was anything but explicitly political. And so this was, this was different, and this was special. And it's one of those things, again, that you just you can't erase what he meant to so many people, although it, it is kind of stunning to see people try in real time to blunt his more ragged edges. Well, Dave Zirin, I know you've got a full dance card today. We promised you you'd be out by 145. We're going to deliver on that promise. Uh, your new book, we'll have to have you back for this, Brazil's Dance with the Devil, the World Cup, the Olympics, and the Fight for Democracy. Thanks for being with us today. No, thank you. And we'll be back after this. I will walk along by the black muddy river. Sing me a song of my own. Stay with us. Colin will be right back with a tribute to a man who survived three concentration camps to become one of Hartford's most famous business leaders. 
Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Esther Shitu and Olivia Piper. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Ron Paul. For show pages, articles, and photos of the Here and Now staff reading The Fountainhead, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, the story of Jehovah's Witnesses. And now, back to Colin. So actually, there's an odd intersection between that uh, show uh, and the segment that we're about to do, because the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, were um, defiers uh, of the Nazi regime, uh, and they went to concentration camps, uh, and they were even occasionally, well, they were often, I think, offered the chance to just to get out by renouncing uh, who they said they were, and they wouldn't do it. So there is kind of an odd uh, tie-in to the uh, segment we're going to do right here, Um, and um, so how to begin? Well, actually, I said something on social media over the weekend that you couldn't write the history of Hartford in the 20th century without men- mentioning David Chase. I mean, he was that intrinsic uh, to, to what Hartford was, uh, both in terms of his role uh, in, as a, a businessman and a creator of buildings that still shape and define the skyline of this uh, city. I was lucky enough to work in one of them, the Gold Building, for quite a long time, uh, but also as a philanthropist, also as a civic leader, uh, also as somebody who believed uh, in the city where he lived and the idea that it could get better. Uh, And so uh, we lost him uh, at the age of 88. Uh, His services were yesterday and now joining us, uh, his son, Arnold Chase, also a philanthropist and president of Chase Enterprises. Uh, Arnold, first of all, my condolences at a very difficult time for you and and thank you at this time for, for making room for this appearance. Thank you, Colin. So I, you know, I want to begin just by reminding people what this man had to overcome uh, to become who he was. Um, your sister Cheryl, I think in the paper, called him a fighter and a survivor. Can we begin there? I mean, this is an incredible story that this man survived three different death camps, uh, made it escape from the third one and made it to this country. Uh, is there anything more you can tell us about that story? I don't know how much he would have talked to you about it. You know, uh, he talked very, very little about it to my sister and myself. And most of what we know, we read in uh, stories and interviews with uh, with strangers. Mm-hmm. And you know, over the years, you know, we've been able to piece together a lot. But uh, as is typical with many Holocaust survivors, uh, they really don't want to talk about it. Um, once he got here, he then became, he, he lived that kind of basic American success story, starting with essentially nothing, uh, having had to even, I think, lie about his age to get to America, uh, and then just beginning to build up from nothing. And I think it's a hard thing for somebody who hasn't done that to, to imagine what kind of temperament it takes, you know, to do first this thing, then that thing, uh, an assortment of, of what really kind of amounted to odd jobs that he turned into businesses. And did he... Did he tell you anything about that, that that was a kind of a transferable life lesson? We, um, we had a lot of life lessons from him, and probably the, the most central life lesson uh, to our relationship uh, with her father was, um, was that of um, sense of family and, and love. And, you know, as humans, we don't uh, innately possess awareness of when a loved one will pass and you know far too often despite our best intentions the opportunity to express meaningful last words is is lost forever and you know no one really understood this better than my father 
who lost virtually his entire family in almost an instant at the death camps. And you know what troubled him for the the rest of his life was his inability to to know, you know when his family passed and his inability to express final words to them. And as such, he never wanted any of his newly created family to endure the the guilt and pain that he went through. Uh, So the first life lesson he taught us was um, the importance of of basically the words, I love you. And, you know, he, he, by deeds uh, and by words, you know, he, he made us realize that none of us know, you know when our, our last day will be. And uh, I, I know growing up, I've, I've heard so many people say, that, that have lost a loved one, say, well, I think I knew this person loved me, or I, I wished I had said this or that. And, you know, what he taught us was uh, every time we see one another, there's a hug, a, a kiss and an I love you um, at the beginning and the end. And that way, if something unexpected happens, you always have, um, have you have said what you wanted to uh, say. And, and in our case, um, with our father's sudden and unexpected passing a few days ago, the fact that our last words to him were indeed, I love you, has really brought us much comfort and uh, and closure, and uh, you know the 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 next most important lesson my father taught us was never to lose hope, despite however bad things seemed to be at the time. And you know in the camps there were numerous cases of fathers having witnessed the loss of their entire families, and Hitler by all accounts was on a path to world domination, and uh, many of these people would literally give up on life by surrendering their will to live. They would just roll over and die, even though physically they they could have gone on. And, you know, for our father as well, I mean, there was absolutely nothing hopeful anywhere in his future that would have encouraged him to live. Yet despite all of that, he did everything possible to survive. And, and I often say, you know, even if an angel had spoken to him at that moment, telling him that in the future he would be friends with numerous United States presidents, he would travel on Air Force One or be literally embraced at uh, the Belvedere, which is the Polish White House, by the president of Poland, or be called my Jewish brother by the Pope, or he would enjoy success behind his wildest imagination. There would be absolutely no reason to believe any of it. And you you think, and we think, how different things would have been if he too had, had just given up. So... You know, the, the lesson to us and the lesson really for all of us is that just because you absolutely can't see any light at the end of the tunnel, no matter how hard you work, doesn't mean it's not there. You know, he, he taught us every tunnel is, is um, not straight, you know, and even the brightest light at the tunnel's end can't be seen if, if you're dealing with a curved tunnel. Mm. But it's nevertheless there, and if you keep looking for that light, you will find it. So the the you know the never give up message was so so Im- important uh, to him, and uh, and probably you know the the third most important life lesson to us was that uh, his business successes were merely a means to an end to create the resources that allowed him to fund numerous good deeds and and actions. And 
he taught us by example the importance of charity and to him it mattered little whether he was helping Buddhists build their first house of worship in this area or helping Catholic charities or supporting Jewish causes and you know while, while people are aware of his public generosity the reality is that it was matched or exceeded by decades of his privately helping people and you know some of those stories are are are, are just amazing and uh, you know really to summarize his what he stood for it, it's um it's the ability to transcend um hate um and have tolerance and and forgiveness and uh, you know, as you can imagine, uh, his life was one of uh, contrasting extremes. You know, he experienced the greatest cruelty and inhumanity that ever existed, yet he managed to achieve a life full of of uh, utter fulfillment and, and love. And he took nothing for granted and, and lived every day to the fullest. So, um, you know, th- those are the things you know, we, we cling to even though he's gone now. Oh, we got a, just a tweet uh, right now, Arnold. And uh, By the way, Arnold's an old radio guy, and he's uh, managed to kind of uh, bring us in for a landing right at the uh, appropriate time when the show's ending. Uh, somebody tweeted, my mom loved him. Uh, she explained his whole history to me and taught me that when I met a Muslim, I should say, assalamu alaikum. Uh, so, Arnold Chase, thank you so much for joining us today. I'll just quickly add my own two cents, which is that, you know, in an era where so many people, particularly people of means, are saying, what can such and such a place do for me? What can you do for me so I'll stay here? David Chase always seemed to be saying to Hartford, what can I do for you? What can I do next for you? Uh, And for that, we owe a tremendous debt. But uh, Arnold, our condolences from all of us here at WNPR, obviously a great friend of the station too, and uh, to you and your family, uh, our great sorrow. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Colin. Uh, All right. We are going to go out uh, with that. Uh, Thanks very much to Betsy Kaplan for producing today's show. We're going to be back tomorrow with a show about Jehovah's Witnesses uh, on Wednesday. We will do our... Uh, annual Song of the Summer show, which always seems to make everybody mad, including us, but we do it anyway. Uh, Thanks for listening today.